Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and the following documentary on the Salem Witch Trials is a special Halloween episode of The Week in Doubt. From February 1692 to May of 1693, a rampant wave of mass hysteria swept through colonial Massachusetts, leading to roughly 200 accusations of witchcraft. The tragic events that unfolded live on as a lurid cautionary tale about the importance of due process, as well as the dangers of superstition, false accusation, and religious extremism. Out of the 200 accused, 20 would eventually be executed, 19 by hanging, and one a man named Giles Corey by being pressed to death. Several others, including two infants, would end up dying in prison. Prior to the events of 1692, there had been other notable cases of people being executed for witchcraft in colonial New England. In 1647, Ailes, or Alice Young, was hanged at the Meeting House Square in Hartford, Connecticut, and was supposedly the first person executed for witchcraft in the American colonies. A year later in 1648, a midwife named Margaret Jones, said to possess a malignant touch that caused nausea and deafness, was also hanged. She was the first to be executed for witchcraft in Massachusetts Bay Colony. She was one of 15 killed during a witch hunt that spanned from 1648 to 1663. Then in 1688, four of the six children of a Boston Mason named John Goodwin were thought to be possessed by goodwife Anne Glover, a washerwoman and the family servant. Prominent Boston minister Cotton Mather mentioned the case in his book, Memorable Providences Relating to Witchcrafts and Possessions. He describes how the children were affected by quote-unquote stupendous witchcraft and how the eldest, tempted by the devil, stole linen from goodwife Glover. Soon after, the children began experiencing fits or what at the time had been described as the so-called disease of astonishment. Other supposed symptoms of possession exhibited by the children included trying to harm themselves and others, losing control of their bodies, and even flapping their arms like birds. It's thought that this behavior may have later influenced the girls of Salem Village. Supposedly, the Goodwin children were eventually healed through prolonged prayer and fasting. Goodwife Glover, whose own husband had characterized her as a witch, was hanged on November 16, 1688. Perhaps in order to understand the Puritan mindset or worldview regarding witchcraft, it's best to briefly examine the history of witch hunts in medieval Europe. Witch hunts may have been new to the Americas, but in European countries such as Germany, England, Italy, and France, witch hunts had already been a centuries-old phenomenon, although the peak of the European witch trials only lasted from about 1580 to 1630. It's thought that they began in the 14th century, with the groundwork having been laid even earlier, with the issuing of papal bulls against heresies. In 1326, Pope John XXII authorized the Inquisition to prosecute witchcraft as heresy, and then in 1484, Pope Innocent VIII declared witchcraft punishable by death. To the medieval Christian, the Bible was the infallible word of God, and as the book of Exodus clearly states, thou shall not suffer a witch to live. All in all, between the 15th and 18th centuries, it's thought that an estimated 40,000 to 60,000 people had been executed for witchcraft. It was deemed necessary to gather sufficient evidence before condemning someone as a witch. 
1486, German Catholic clergyman Heinrich Kramer penned the infamous Malleus Maleficarum, The Hammer of the Witches or Hammer Against Witches, a book which instructed the reader step by step on how to identify, interrogate, and prosecute a supposed witch. One method of identification involved looking for a so-called devil's mark or witch's teeth, usually a mark or mole on the body that supposedly witches use to suckle demons or familiars. Adding to the humiliation and degradation of the accused, the practice often called for the shaving of the accused's body, including the genital area. The Malleus Maleficarum, also called on torture as a method for eliciting a confession. One device used was the dreaded strapado. The accused's arms were tied behind their back, and then they were hoisted into the air. Sometimes additional weight was added to the body to increase the effect. The process often resulted in dislocation of the shoulders. Another practice was referred to as swimming the witch, or ordeal by water. The accused was dunked underwater. If they floated, they were considered a witch, possibly owing to the idea that witches floated because they rejected baptism. If the accused did not float, this was seen as an indication of innocence. The idea that the ordeal was meant to ensure that either way the accused did not survive, either they would drown or be executed, may be a modern exaggeration. It seems in at least some cases, assistants were on hand to pull the subject back up should they not surface on their own. Contrary to what one might think, witch hunters didn't go door-to-door -door seeking out witches. It was more the case that the government encouraged neighbor to report on neighbor, creating a toxic atmosphere of paranoia and distrust, where a neighborly disagreement could end in a deadly accusation of witchcraft. The idea that witchcraft was not a matter of superstition but rather a central aspect of reality, the paranoid notion that one never knew whether or not one's neighbor was in league with the devil, this was baggage that the Puritans, a religious splinter group, would carry with them to the New World, when in 1629 King Charles I granted them a charter to settle and govern an English colony in Massachusetts Bay. The Puritans dreamed of founding a perfect godly society, a theocracy, without separation of church and state. Ironically, the Puritans would be the undoing of their own dream. In the words of historian George Lincoln Burr, the Salem witchcraft was the rock on which the theocracy shattered. Not everyone in the community of Salem Village shared the puritanical mindset. Different people came to the New World for different reasons. This in itself was a cause of tension, but in addition there were also quarrels and disputes over grazing rights, property lines, and church privileges. The term Salem witch trials can be a bit confusing. The initial events took place in the community of Salem Village, modern-day Danvers, but preliminary hearings and later trials took place in a number of towns, including what was then known as Salem Town, modern-day Salem, Massachusetts. Another cause of tension was the fact that the inhabitants of Salem Village resented that Salem Town held political dominion over their small coastal farming community. The small village had earned a reputation for being quarrelsome and fractious, plagued by internal divisions and external conflicts with neighboring communities. It's been speculated that these tensions helped lay the groundwork for the tragic events to come. The initial events of 1692 seem to have taken place in the home of Reverend Samuel Paris. The community of Salem Village had voted to hire an ordained minister of their own choosing, apart from Salem Town. 
The first two, James Bailey and George Burroughs, who would later be swept up by the hysteria to come and hanged as a witch, had only stayed a few years each, opting to leave after the community had failed to pay their full rate. The third was Samuel Paris. The parish was divided over the choice of Reverend Paris. Indeed, he was not without his flaws. He seemed to only add to the tension in the already fractious community. He failed to solve the disputes of his congregation, and he had a habit of publicly admonishing parishioners in good standing, ordering them to pay penance for small transgressions. In the winter of 1692, Elizabeth Paris, the nine-year-old daughter of Reverend Samuel Paris, and her cousin Abigail Williams were left in the care of the family slave, Tichiba. Tichiba's race or ethnicity is still a matter of some dispute. The records from the Salem witch trials describe her as an Indian woman, but that hasn't stopped historians from speculating that she may have at least been partially of African descent. Apparently, she was originally from an Arawak village, but had been stolen from her home as a child and sold into slavery in Barbados, where Samuel Paris purchased her when she was in her teens, bringing her back to Boston with him. She entertained the girls with stories and feats of divination, for instance, demonstrating how an egg white suspended in water could be used to see the face of one's future husband. The girls knew this type of behavior was strictly forbidden. They managed to keep it secret for a time, but eventually the circle grew bigger. Six more girls ranging in age from 12 to 20 joined in. Anne Putnam Jr., Mary Walcott, Elizabeth Hubbard, Elizabeth Booth, Mercy Lewis, and Mary Warren. The girls started having strange fits, which Beverly Minister John Hale described as, quote-unquote, beyond the power of epileptic fits or natural disease to affect. Oddly enough, when only a boy of 12, John Hale had supposedly witnessed the execution of the aforementioned Margaret Jones. The girls displayed other disturbing behavior as well. They threw things about, made strange noises, screamed and stopped their ears when the minister would preach, complained that they were being bitten, pricked, and pinched by invisible spirits. Even worse, they engaged in self-harm. On one occasion, Abigail Williams supposedly threw firebrands about and even attempted to go into the fire. Reverend Paris called on Dr. William Griggs to examine the girls. He could find nothing physically wrong with them and concluded that they must be under the evil hand of witchcraft. At some point, the Paris's neighbor, Mary Sibley, offered to instruct Tichiba and her husband, John Indian, on how to make a so-called witch cake. The cake was made from rye flour and the urine of the afflicted, and then fed to a dog. The strange logic behind the practice was tied to the Cartesian notion of effluvia. It was thought that witches afflicted their victims by means of malignant particles. The particles would remain in the afflicted's urine, and when consumed by the dog, caused the witch to cry out in pain, revealing his or herself. To the Puritans, even white magic was forbidden, for it was considered using the devil to fight the devil. When Reverend Samuel Paris found out what Mary Sibley had done, he angrily admonished her, and she was suspended from communion with the church. But upon publicly apologizing before the congregation and declaring her intent was innocent, she was forgiven and her standing was restored. Reverend Paris questioned his daughter Elizabeth and her cousin Abigail in an attempt to determine the identity of the witch afflicting them. The girls named Tichiba, 
If the girls truly believe they were afflicted, they may have named Tichaba simply because she was the one who'd introduced them to magic and divination. Another factor may be that those accused of witchcraft tended to be people on the margins of society. Tichaba's status as a slave may have made her an easy target. The accusations did not end with Tichaba. Sadly, this would only be the beginning. Next, the girls named Sarah Good, a homeless beggar known for her bad temperament. Also named was Sarah Osborne, a woman who had already been looked at disapprovingly by the community for having married her indentured servant. One thing that the two women had in common is that they both had a habit of not attending church, which may have made them stand out even more among the inhabitants of the deeply religious Puritan community. The three women, Good, Osborne, and Tichaba, were brought before a tribunal at the Salem Village Meeting House on complaints of witchcraft. Magistrates John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin presided over the proceedings. The women were interrogated for several days and then jailed. During the preliminary phase, the court decided to allow spectral evidence, a decision that would have dire consequences for the accused. Spectral evidence refers to the idea that witches could appear to the afflicted in spectral form, often taking on the shape of a person or animal. Conveniently, it was believed that the witch's specter was only visible to the accuser. Anne Putnam Jr. had claimed that Sarah Good had come to her in spectral form in an attempt to recruit her as a witch and have her sign the Devil's Book. When questioned during the preliminary hearings, both Good and Osborne repeatedly denied being witches. Their denials were met with screams and fits from the girls, who claimed that Good Spectre was attacking them in the courtroom. As strange as it may seem to us, to the Puritans who viewed witchcraft and the devil as accepted aspects of reality, this was considered strong evidence. Unlike Good and Osborne, Tichaba quickly confessed to practicing witchcraft. For three days, she gave fanciful testimony about spectral visits, talking animals, night flights on broomsticks, and of a tall man from Boston who bid her to sign the devil's book in blood. Tichaba claimed she saw nine names in the book, her own, Sarah Good's, and Sarah Osborne's. According to her testimony, she couldn't make out the remaining names. This detail especially caused panic among the small community, for it meant there were still at least six more witches in their midst. The girls were becoming bolder in their accusations. It was no longer just those on the fringes who were being targeted. The next wave of accusations included the names of some prominent members of the community, such as Rebecca Nurse, who was old and infirmed, yet well-respected. 39 people signed a petition attesting to her moral character, a meaningful gesture in a paranoid environment where drawing undue attention to oneself could lead to an accusation of witchcraft. The witch hysteria continued to escalate. By the spring of 1962, over a hundred people from Salem to as far as Boston had been arrested on charges of witchcraft. Family members of the accused also became targets. Perhaps the most poignant example is that of Dorothy or Dorcas Good, the four-year-old daughter of Sarah Good. It's thought that she confessed in order to be with her mother. She was so small that a special set of chains had to be made to fit her. Rebecca Nurse's two sisters, Mary Eastie and Sarah Cloyce, were also arrested. The arrest of Martha Corey and other covenanted church members in good standing was said to trouble the community. Martha had been skeptical of the girls' accusations. Shortly after her own arrest, her husband Giles, another fully covenanted member of the church, was also taken into custody. 
In May, the accusations continued to pour in, and warrants were issued, but people began to avoid apprehension. Previously, the proceedings had all been investigative, statements, depositions, and inquiries. But on May 27th, things began to move into the trial phase, when Massachusetts Governor William Phipps ordered the establishment of a special court of Oyer and Terminer, meaning to hear and determine, for the counties of Suffolk, Essex, and Middlesex. The court would be convened in Salem Town in late May or early June of 1692. In the meantime, Sarah Osborne, one of the first three women to be accused, died in prison. On June 2nd, Bridget Bishop, a prominent property owner who had been accused of witchcraft in the past, was the first to be tried. She was found guilty and hanged to death eight days later on Gallows Hill. The official trial proceedings were in many ways similar to the preliminary hearings. Much of the same evidence, including that of the spectral variety, was used, and the girls continued to react dramatically to the testimony of the accused. Around the time the court had originally convened, Cotton Mather had sent a letter gently cautioning against relying too heavily on spectral evidence. Do not lay more stress on pure spectral evidence than it will bear. It is very certain that the devils have sometimes represented the shapes of persons not only innocent but also very virtuous, though I believe that the just God then ordinarily provides a way for the speedy vindication of the persons thus abused. One sure way to avoid execution was to confess. It was thought that confessing put one's judgment in the hands of God, but perhaps somewhat surprisingly, only about 55 of the 200 persons accused chose this route. Even during the trials, the girls' accusations continued. They named people from areas outside of Salem, including Gloucester, Beverly, Lynn, Malden, Amesbury, Bill Ricca, the town right next door to yours truly, Marblehead, Boston, Charlestown, and Andover. It's possible that all the attention the girls were receiving may have been fueling their behavior. News of the events had spread as far as London. On July 19, 1692, five more women were hanged, including Sarah Good and Rebecca Nurse. Sarah Good's famous last words were directed at Reverend Nicholas Noyce, who asked her to confess prior to her execution. You are a liar. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. As the story goes, 25 years later, Noyes died of a hemorrhage and literally choked on his own blood. Then on August 9th, five more were hanged, including Reverend George Burroughs. Before being hanged, Burroughs managed to recite the entire Lord's Prayer perfectly from beginning to end, a supposed impossibility for a witch. It's thought that this may have planted a seed of doubt concerning the accusations in the minds of the community. Nevertheless, eight more people were sent to the gallows on September 22nd. As mentioned previously, all of the victims of the Salem witch trials were executed by hanging, with the exception of Giles Corey, who was pressed to death. There is a common misconception that some of the victims were burned at the stake, but English law had outlawed the practice approximately 150 years earlier. Giles Corey had refused to enter a plea because he knew without it the court couldn't proceed. His interrogators sought to press the truth from him. They placed boards upon his chest and then piled stone after stone. They repeatedly asked him for a plea, but each time he refused, replying only with the words more weight until he had been crushed to death.
The degradation of the victims of the Salem witch hunt didn't end with their deaths. To add insult to injury, since witches were not permitted to be buried in consecrated ground, the executed were buried in shallow graves and nearly expunged from history. In the fall of 1692, attitudes had begun to change. The girls' accusations had become too outrageous. They had started targeting members of the upper class, ministers, children, and even the wives of Reverend Increase Mather, the father of Cotton Mather, and Governor William Phipps. On October 29th, Governor Phipps dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminer and moved the remaining cases to the Superior Court. Spectral evidence would no longer be allowed, in part due to Increase Mather, who famously stated, It were better that ten suspected witches should escape than that one innocent person should be condemned. Forty-nine of the remaining fifty-two accused were acquitted, and the other three were held until the spring. Tichaba was eventually sold back into slavery. Five years passed before the people of Salem truly began to acknowledge any culpability or wrongdoing. On January 16, 1697, a day of public fasting was held as a show of atonement. One of the judges, Samuel Sewell, publicly acknowledged his guilt regarding the role he played in the trials, and along with twelve jurors, publicly made a show of repentance by signing a petition. The Reverend John Hale famously apologized for his role in the events of 1692. In his book, A Modest Inquiry into the Nature of Witchcraft, he wrote, Such was the darkness of that day, the tortures and lamentations of the afflicted, and the power of former presidents, that we walked in the clouds and could not see our way. Numerous petitions were filed between 1700 and 1703, calling for a reversal of the convictions. On February 14th of 1703, Reverend Joseph Green and the members of the Salem Village Church voted to reverse the excommunication of Martha Corey. The only one of the girls to ever publicly apologize was Ann Putnam Jr., who in 1706 stood before the congregation of the Salem Village Church and asked for forgiveness, claiming she had not intended any malice, but rather had been deluded by Satan into accusing the innocent. In 1711, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts reversed the guilty verdicts against 22 of the 31 convicted, fully exonerating them and paying 600 British pounds in restitution to their heirs. It wouldn't be until 1957 that the remaining nine victims of the witch trials had their guilty verdicts reversed. As cliché as it might sound, perhaps we should take the Salem Witch Trials as a prime example of that hackneyed axiom that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and thank you for listening to this special Halloween episode of The Week in Doubt. The witch ever struck